sin cruces de limites, no se libre de Dios, no se libre de Dios, no se libre de Dios, no se My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. God chooses and calls everyone. As St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless in his presence through love. He chose us. He chose Abraham in Christ. He chose Sarah, his wife. He chose Jacob even changed his name to Israel. And then he saved Moses from sure destruction and chose him to lead his people. He chose David. He chose Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Ruth and even chose Melchizedek, that mysterious figure whose purpose it took so long to figure out. And then he chose Mary, chose John the Baptist. And as we go through time and as we go through the centuries, he chose you and me. But we must not let this pass as a kind of a fait accompli. This choice we must We must experience it, go back over it now, as people go over their old wedding pictures or old grainy videos taped on VHS or on Super 8. They go over them and maybe they're badly filmed. The other day, Noel showed me a video put together for the 25th anniversary of his wedding with a little introduction of his teenage daughters. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was this old, literally grainy footage in some, I guess it was a Brampton parish there where he got married. With a big flower on his lapel and his wife in a beautiful dress. And uh, they like going over those videos. And it's one of the characteristics of the figures in the Bible. They never come up with their own interesting ideas. They are not the CEOs of a startup that they thought of. They are always chosen. Look at the marvelous account of Jeremiah. He remained in Judah when all the important people of the city were carried off by the Babylonians following the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar and he was left behind. He was just a little guy. And of course he had first-hand knowledge of the violence in the year 597 and then about 10 years later as well when uh, there was this constant series of assaults, violent assault on his people. He saw this. 
And then comes that luminous passage at the very opening of his book about, or his account, or his, his, his writings, about the mystery of his vocation. It's really one of the most beautiful, luminous passages, something you never get used to reading somehow. He said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You're talking about entropy, man. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to all the nations. So what does he say? Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say, whatever I command you, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Do not say that I am too young. It's like saying, I can't do that, I have no experience, I'm too young. I won't be good at this, it's too much for me, it's too demanding. Therefore, I won't be happy. It's too, too much of a challenge. Or something like that. When you say, I'm too young. It's not that we say, I am too young. We are the age that we are. We can't help that. But, but maybe we think, I am not capable of doing this somehow. In a certain way, it's true. We don't have the qualities. We don't have the abilities. But if we can give what we can give now, we'll figure, we'll figure things out later. Right now, I give what I can. And what I can should be, I mean, it should be everything. And we can ask the Lord, how has my response been in this past year? And where have I seen lacks of generosity or ways in which I said, I'm too young. I'm too young. For that, that thing that I read about, that I see in our Father, that I see in the saints, that I'm too young. There's a curious scene in the trailer for the new Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun. It's called Top Gun Maverick. And it's going to come out in the summer of 2021. So get ready. But... It shows scenes of you know, jets flying and a silhouette of Tom Cruise there with a voiceover describing all his exploits as we see him soar through the air, tumbling at breakneck speed. And, and uh, the voiceover describes them as legendary and then we see a, a bunch of young recruits because he's going to be recruited to teach these and the voice says that what he has to teach you may mean the difference between life and death and they're all you know they're all looking very uh, impressed it's all done in a very solemn tone 
And then Tom Cruise shows up, and you can see he looks obviously a little bit older now from the earlier years. That was 1987, the earlier, you know, Top Gun. This is now however many years that is now. So he shows up in full uniform at his commanding officer after receiving a, a summons to be an instructor. And this elderly, graying commanding officer with a whole series of badges on his, on his pocket here on the side says to him, your reputation precedes you. And Tom Cruise, in a kind of light-hearted way, says, I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. <laughs> and the commanding officer says, they're called orders, Maverick. <laughs> but he smiles. They're called orders. But our vocation, is it an order? Is it an order? Is it a, is it a friendly, smiling Officer in command saying they're called orders. We're, after all, not in the military, though we are fighting in a very serious war. And what we do could mean the difference between life and death. The life and death of a soul. That's why we give our entire life. When Jeremiah said, I am too young, his response was not a refusal to answer like like it was like Abraham and Moses and later like Mary he responded with humility to God's invitation or if you prefer to God's orders but he was perplexed at being chosen at at being actually preordained but it opened up the grandeur of God that that he uses us in ways we don't imagine or we don't expect. He called him and preordained him for his service before he was even conceived. And of course, it's true for us too. Look at Jeremiah, look at Ezekiel, look at Daniel, look at, they're all called. And they all experience it in a different way. Ezekiel experienced it is his call in the year 593 as a kind of theophany. And he saw, he saw, you know, uh, sort of an image of God and the angels and these choirs. And it was quite scary when he saw. And, and I, I would say maybe our father too had a kind of a theophany. You know, a theophany is a picture of God in some ways. And in front of which you feel uh, deeply, deeply unworthy. And now, if we go to our Lord, think of the, the hours of rapture that our Lord experienced in prayer. You know, when he went off into the mountains and the, uh, the apostles stayed behind. You know, what would our Lord have prayed about? He didn't need anything. He didn't need to be informed about anything didn't really like need help was he petitioning God the Father for something was he saying to God the Father uh, help me you know when I have to talk to those Pharisees I don't know you know I'll, I'll need your help there. what was he asking 
What were you asking him? Or what were you praying about? Well, I think it had something to do with his call of the apostles. His call of Nicodemus. His call of Zacchaeus. His call of the widow of Naim. His call of the Samaritan woman. Even probably in there, there were the high priests who he was ready to call. That could have had a different role, some of them at least. That would not have resisted that call. Or the Roman, the Roman soldier. And of course, he was, he was somehow calling them. He was somehow giving them the vocation, the grace of vocation when he was there alone with God the Father. And that included, of course, the crucial call of Peter. And as he, as he thought about all those, he cast his gaze through, through the centuries. We must picture that. Jesus there, what was he praying about? He cast his gaze throughout the centuries, and there he called St. Dominic, he called St. Thomas Aquinas, he called Thomas More, he called you know, all the saints, St. Therese of Lisieux, he called you and me. Cast his gaze. It's partly what led Isaiah to write, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I have etched you. I have inscribed your name. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, is that, is that Isaiah engraving God's name on his hands? Or is it God inscribing Isaiah's name or our name on his hands. It's not clear. At least maybe, maybe some exegetes will tell you what it is, but I, I don't know which one it is. But both work. But what it really means to underline is the extent to which God loves us and chooses us. It's the sovereign what our Father called the sovereign grace of vocation. That's how our Father called it. The sovereign grace. Like, a, like it's, it's a sovereign grace. Like a ruby in your hand. It's not something temporary. It's a, he described it as a, as a light within us. A sweeping avalanche. If you've seen those uh, footage of avalanche, you know, that just just takes everything with it. And in the letter to our, for October 28, 2020, the Father says, let, it, let us see the greatness of this call, which fills our journey in this world with an air of eternity, in spite of our limitations and mistakes and the difficulties we encounter along the way, in spite of the in spite ofs, as our Father used to say, in spite of the in spite ofs. Or you might look at what are those, what are those in spite ofs? He quotes the famous passage um, in which our Father shows that he believes himself to be part of that prayer of Jesus in the mountain while he dismissed his apostles and they went off into the boat. Our Father, this is in this letter where he quotes this letter, from 1932. 
he spoke of the sovereign grace of vocation, and it's, it's not something temporary, but a permanent grace. And, and our Father says, it is a new vision of life, as though a light had been lit within us. It is, at the same time, a mysterious impulse, a vital force, which is somewhat like a sweeping avalanche. See, there's the image of the, the avalanche. In short, the Father says, it is a grace that embraces our whole life and shows itself as, a, as light and strength, light so that we can see the way, see what God wants of us, and strength so as to be able to respond to the call. To say yes and go forward on the path. That's it. Light and strength. Light and strength. So in a retreat, we need light. I mean, we need to see, identify where I have to change, where I have to improve. Light. I mean, that's what light we see. You know, so, ah, now I understand. That's what, okay, that's, that's light. And then we say, okay, that's going to be hard for me. I have to change something. That's, I'm going to need strength. So it's a, our father called it a new vision of life. Why does he call it a new vision of life? Did we suddenly become smarter? Did we suddenly become more brilliant? Is it, I mean, is it not something you're simply told about? I don't, I don't think anybody ever said to you, uh, God has chosen you to, before the foundation of the, of the earth, you know, of the world, God has chosen you before all time to be a numerator. Well, maybe, maybe, it's, I don't know. But, but that's something that you have to see. That's what we mean when we say it's a new vision of, of life. Thérèse of Lisieux was seven years old when she saw the ocean for the first time in a little village in Normandy, in northwestern France, a little village called Trouville, Trouville, which is a strange name for a town, but anyway, it means a hole, hole in the ground, basically. But they, Trouville, or they call it Trouville-sur-Mer. And in fact, in Trouville, that's, it's right in the north part, so it kind of like faces the English Channel. But uh, Claude Monet was... Uh, this famous Impressionist painter who did a wonderful series of paintings there from the 1870s to the 1880s or so. And uh, so it wasn't exactly contemporary with her. She was born in 1873. And so he would have been there from the 1870s and on to the 1880s. We have a whole series of his paintings where we see uh, these beach scenes with ladies in these funny, you know, dresses and umbrellas and you really get a sense like how windy it was and then the ocean and and these changing booths and stuff they're very they're very uh, popular so she was about seven when for the first time in her life she saw the ocean and it made a very deep impression on her probably similar to Claude Monet she saw the wind and the waves. Then she said that watching a little sailboat, she recalled she made the resolution never to wander away from the glance of Jesus in order to travel peacefully toward the eternal shore. She saw this boat being tossed about back and forth 
indeed. You go and see those paintings by Claude Monet and you, you just get a, a deep sense of that. And it, it somewhat frightened her. It was for her the image of we, like her vocation was like a boat being tossed about. And we must never be... We wander away, away from that glance of Jesus. Our vocation is really a glance of love from Jesus, our Lord. You and I have received that glance, that look of love. And St. Therese often expressed surprise at the free choice of God in her life. She said that God does not call those who are worthy, but those who please him out of pure mercy. And she desired to take refuge in the grace of God's merciful choice of her. So, and our father, of course, also emphasized the basics. The basics, the, the basic cause of our vocation is God's grace. And our response, which is a way of perfecting our freedom. That's why you made me free, Lord. That's why I mean, you gave me freedom to, to correspond to that grace of vocation. Pope Francis also spoke about this grace and also as our free response. He mentioned this uh, on Christmas Eve last year, how closely this is uh, related to our freedom. He said, we may not wait for our neighbors to be good before we do good to them, for the church to be perfect before we love her, for others to respect us before we serve them. Let us begin with ourselves. This is what it means to freely accept the gift of grace. And holiness is nothing other than preserving this freedom. The freedom to embrace the call is the freedom to embrace the, the res- this free response to this grace. To do, to be, yeah, to love others, to give ourselves to others, Begin by giving ourselves. And of course, we feel supported by grace, by God's presence right here, by the word of God, by the example of so many saints, the example of our father, the example of uh, Don Alvaro. But we have to look at our vocation also with a sense of responsibility. We are now a generation of numerators, and we will pass something on to the next generation. And uh, do I understand this truly? What am I passing on with my behavior, with my way of living? Or have in any way I just made a little enclave for myself? We can imagine the grace of vocation, perhaps like a good wine that, that is given us from the Rioja region and an old bottle with a real cork and... Uh, that allows it to breathe without additives. Our father, you could say, had a refined and cultivated taste, both humanly and supernaturally, for the things of God. And it takes time and attention to develop this taste for God's presence. 
And we must really unleash that love, liberate it from the confines of our own, you could say that, the confines of, of the sacristy or the We must develop that connoisseurship, right? A cultivated taste for the things of God in our life. I was in, in Germany a few years ago. I think it was after the uh, World Youth Day, and I was able to stop in, uh, in Essen to visit some relatives. And one of my relatives is a wine connoisseur. He owns a whole vineyard in southern France. And uh, so while I was in Madrid, I bought two bottles of uh, Rioja wine. And um, they had wrapped it up in a very special bubble wrap so it wouldn't get broken in the luggage and stuff. And So I pulled it out at the supper there with the relatives, and there he was. And um, I invited him if he wanted to try it out. I wanted to get a sense if he thought it was good wine, really, is what I wanted. So he put a small amount, and he swirled it around in the glass, looked it up to the light. You have to look it up at the light for some reason. Then, a gentle swig. His eyes go up, as though he's like searching for the, searching for something. Swishes it around briefly. It goes down, he says, Yes, that's good, dry, Rioja. And I said, yes, I got my approval. Right? And uh, this is how we must, you could say, taste God when we are living our vocation, taste God in the center. Don't lose a taste for God there. Like when we chew gum, after a while, you lose the taste. Uh, the t- our vocation gives us this taste for the things, divine things. And, uh, and so, during this retreat, let us let us pray and 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 ask for a more refined taste of how well we have responded to this divine vocation. If I've ever wandered off like that ship, that little, that boat that St. Therese saw. Ask the Lord to change and maybe transform your heart so that it is more like that of Christ in the Gospel. Ezekiel says, it's God speaking to Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put on you a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what we need. We need a heart of flesh. Is it possible that at my age, after so many years, Lord, you'd give me a new heart? What is this new heart about? Isn't that the newness, the freshness, the vibrancy, not stale or parched, but filled with a youthful dynamism, full of surprise and wonder? An old heart tends to cynicism, 
sarcasm. Unimpressed by the growth of the apostolate. Unfazed by God's overtures of love. Just an old heart. It just does the norms. It loses that interior vibrancy for the apostolate. But God is like a lover who comes out wanting to seduce us in some way. Imagine getting a heart transplant. Your valves are not working. The blood is not flowing properly. It's not pumping through the rest of the system. And you're weak. And you need good oxygenated blood. That's what the heart is supposed to do. But if our heart is weak, we need a change there. So let us uh, let's look at how we can yeah look at that love for God that we have in response to this divine call with a, a deep act of faith in God's choice that He is He's chosen us as He has glanced throughout all the ages and saw you here and now is the time to renew it to rededicate ourselves to give ourselves. More generously and, and make make good, uh, yeah, good resolutions in in how that can be concretized, how it can be specified, because it's the greatest uh, gift we have received, our divine vocation. But we want to specify it so it's refreshed, renewed, and uh, our heart will fall in love again. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me. In this meditation, I ask God to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede. Thank you.